Um, We're going to read from Luke chapter 19. If you want to follow along, there are Bibles next to you. So Luke 19. He entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, he, uh, he has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. And our second reading is from Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll be starting at verse 17. Now this I affirm and insist on in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles live, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance and hardness of heart. They have lost all sensitivity and have have abandoned themselves to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way you learned Christ. For surely you have heard about him and were taught in him, as truth is in Jesus. You were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to clothe yourselves with the new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So then, putting away all falsehood, Let all of us speak the truth to our neighbours, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labour and work honestly with their own hands, so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up, as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore be imitators of God, as beloved children, and live in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Someone cuts in front of you in the supermarket or the lunch line at school and you get steamingly resentful but say nothing, uh, not from courtesy but from fear, and then spend the rest of the day wondering, why do I behave that way? Uh, Your kids, or at least that was for the morning service, your parents pay little attention to your preferences and so you figure out the most cutting thing that you can say to them, although it's more yell than say, and then as everyone retreats to lick their wounds, you wonder, why do I behave this way? It's time for bed, and you know that it's way better if you charge your phone in the kitchen rather than your room, but you take it with you anyway, and then the thoughts arrive, 
and you type in your favourite site and once again you watch yourself descend into viewing pornography. And in the morning, you wonder, why do I behave this way? At work or at school or at uni, you see the person who's been bitching about you and gossiping about you for months and you find yourself scheming how to bring them down and then at lunch you join in the latest round of character assassination telling yourself that it's okay because they really deserve it. But as you catch the bus home, you wonder, why do I behave this way? You don't need to be an astonishingly self-aware person to have a sense of the gap. The gap between who you are and who you were created to be, who you could be, who in your better moments perhaps you really long to be. The gap exposes itself in odd, even extraordinary moments and ways. And at the same time, in all the very ordinary business of life, shopping and cooking and driving and talking. Fights come out of nowhere. Anger seems so close at hand. Bitterness and joylessness and self-pity leak out in that horrible, even humiliating way. And there doesn't seem much you're able to do about it. You seem to be pretty much the same person today as you were last week or as you were last month or as you were last year. And you ask yourself, is real, actual change genuine growth in character and personal substance even possible? These are the questions that are front and centre in our integrated series, which... Uh, Richard mentioned, we begin uh, this week in our services here on Sundays, in our fellowship groups and individual study and reflection during the week. Uh, We've called this integrated series Renewal, the life-changing art of repentance. And over the next month or so, it's my hope and prayer that our experience of that gap, that our experience of the gap will be sharpened both in the sense that we allow ourselves to feel the pain of it rather than try and evade or avoid it, but sharpened maybe even more in the sense that we're far clearer, far more confident and have a far deeper hope in how to respond in the gap. Next week we look at the heart of repentance. Uh, The week after, at the practices of repentance and in our final week we'll look at the results of repentance. But This evening we start where we need to start, right at the beginning, at the beginnings of repentance. We're going to break it out under three headings. Repentance begins first with a grasp of your destiny, second with a sense of your sin, and thirdly with a hope that energises. A grasp of your destiny, a sense of your sin, and a hope that energises. So first then, a grasp of your destiny. Uh, There's a lovely TV ad on a few months back which showed an elderly man uh, on the telephone thanking his daughter for a present that she had recently given him. It was a lovely chopping board for his kitchen and he animatedly sets about using it with a full-length knife preparing his evening meal. Except as the camera pans down, what you see is that the gift his daughter actually gave him was an iPad which he had precisely no idea 
what to do with. And so he thought its most obvious use was as a chopping board. Of course, an iPad is a lousy chopping board, especially once the glass bits of the screen start to flake off under the attack of the knife and sprinkle through the vegetables. That's really lousy chopping boardness. And the ad works, of course, partly because of the generation gap, uh, but also because it speaks intuitively to us about purpose. What is the purpose of an iPad? And the answer is not to be a chopping board. Uh, most people think of themselves to be a more or less good person. I mean, if, if I were to ask you, I mean, you, you know, Mother Teresa or anything like that, I suspect you'd say, no, that's not, but, but I'm a good person. I was talking to someone this morning, and it's just, it so flows, oh, but they've got a good heart. Most of us think that we're more or less a good person, and in fact, most people are insulted if you might suggest that they're a bad person. One of the interesting things about that uh, is, as philosopher Alasdair MacIntyre has highlighted, you can only tell whether or not something is good if you know what it's for. What is its purpose? An iPad is not a good chopping board. It's a lousy chopping board because it costs way more than any respectable chopping board ought to cost. But more importantly, because chopping boards shouldn't drop glass fragments in your vegetables. It's a bad chopping board. So let me ask the question again. What is a good person? Are you really a good person? Or, or for that matter, are you a bad person? Or is such and such a bad person? Is Donald Trump a bad person? See, and I know what you're thinking right now. What about your boss? What about your sibling? And what I'm saying to you is that you can only answer that question if you know what you are for, what human purpose is. Otherwise, you're just guessing. Now, for the last 300 years or so, Western culture really hasn't had an answer to that question. Uh, or more accurately, uh, Western culture has had an answer to the question, what are human beings for? The answer that Western culture has given us is, the question can't be answered. There is no overarching purpose. At most, there's just survival of the species passing on your genes in natural selection and so on. Or at the other end of the spectrum, it's just have fun, enjoy life, and fill it with as many and varied interesting experiences as possible. But both ends of that spectrum fade into a terrible triviality. Can anyone actually sustain a real life on the basis of such feebleness? And so it's a question. What is human purpose? It's a question that nags away at us. What is human purpose and therefore what is human value? What is my purpose and therefore what is my value? Am I a good person? Are you a good person? The Christian faith supplies an answer to this pressing question which is richly satisfying and immensely significant. And you see it in our reading from Paul's letter to the church that is in uh, the ancient town of Ephesus. In verse 17, the apostle writes, Now this I affirm and insist on in the Lord, you must no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their minds. 
Uh, when we speak about repentance, as we'll do throughout this series, it's very important that you don't uh, misunderstand what it is we're talking about. We often think that repentance is kind of a turning away from a wrong thing that we've done and a turning instead to a right thing to do. But the Apostle has, in fact, a far, far grander, bigger, deeper, richer vision than that. It's about changing your entire path in life. That's what repentance is. In fact, when he writes, you must no longer live as the Gentiles live, the word which is translated live is actually the Greek word for walk. You must no longer walk in the same direction as you used to. Your life has a new direction, a new purpose. Because you're headed to a different destination. Which is what we see in verse 22. You were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to clothe yourself with the new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The image the apostle here is uh, initially that of changing clothes, but actually it's changing something far more than clothes even, is it? It's changing yourself. Put away your old self and clothe yourselves with the new self. And the reason you've got to put away that old self is because it was, the apostle says, deluded by lusts. Uh, the word lust here, uh, it would be a mistake to confine it just to uh, sexual desire. The, the Greek word that the apostle uses is epithumia. We've looked at this lots of times here at church. Epithumia. It can refer to any desire, not just sexual desire, any desire that overrules us, that takes over us, that dominates us. It might be the desire to be respected. Might be the desire to be liked. Might be the desire to be in control. The desire to be successful. This delusion of over desire is that thing you think if you have it, it will make you happy. And therefore, if you don't have it, you can't be happy. And as I say, the Apostle calls it a delusion. It's a delusion because these desires overpromise. They can never make you happy. And the reason that they'll never make you happy is that you were created for something better, something higher. You see how the Apostle puts it? For a new self, this renewed self, as the Apostle terms it, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Here is your purpose. This is the, the Bible's vision of human purpose and dignity and destiny. The Apostle picks up the ancient language of the book of Genesis and says, you're not an accident. You're not just the atoms of stardust that could as easily have been a rock but just happened to gain a greater complexity as a human. No, you are the creation of a good creator the living and true God in and through the normal biological processes of reproduction made you, crafted you, formed you. Both generically like all other human beings and specifically and uniquely your human being. And to put it bluntly, he's good at his job. This creator, this artist. He doesn't make junk. 
And at the same time, what the Apostle's saying is that uniquely among all other creatures, human beings bear a likeness to God. Created in likeness to God in true holiness and righteousness. The Christian confession of God is that he is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Three persons in one being, loving and beloved from all eternity. So that the the truest thing you can say about God is that God is love. Not just that God loves, although that's true, of course. But that he is love in the substance of his being. And human beings are created in his likeness, in his image. Creatures made by love, for love. As as the Apostle goes on in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 to talk about us as beloved children who are called to live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. That's your calling. That's what human purpose is. That's your job. Are you good at being human? That's how you can tell. Capable of love and therefore responsible for love. And third, because this, is the creator's, because this is the creative purpose of the living and true God, it won't be thwarted. It will not fail. It is impossible to stop. God will fulfill this, and in that fulfillment, when along with the rest of creation, redeemed human beings are fully fixed up and mended and healed, that is called glory. The glory of a spotless mirror in the bright sun. Utterly reflective of that which is the source of its life and light. Glory. The glory of God. Love unimpeded. That's what you're for. That's your destiny. To love and pursue and delight in what is good and true and beautiful and to hate and reject and weep over what is false and evil and ugly. Oh yes, we human beings have a very high calling. That's what we're made for. And I don't think many of us would seriously doubt this actually. I mean, I know that at times people engage in debating games to the contrary and say, oh, yeah, we're just a bunch of atoms and we're just an accident. And no one, no one lives like that. No one actually manages to pull off that sort of a life. When we see a good person and, and identify good things about a person or when we see a really evil person and, and understand the sort of wretchedness of what they're doing, we know what we're recognising. It's something of this Someone who either embodies or betrays this kind of character of being. Though we might not doubt it, at times we might prefer to avoid it. Because having a clearly visible, straightforwardly high bar of your calling, a sense of your purpose, of what you are for, and of your destiny, of what ought to be. Well, that can be pretty challenging, can't it? And the reason is that we have another sense as well. 
So point to a sense of sin. One of the core ways that the Bible defines the problem we face, uh, one, ways the, one of the ways the Bible answers the question, what's wrong, what's wrong with this world, what's wrong with people, is that we have fallen short of the glory of God. God made us with this purpose, to be image bearers of the one who is love. That's glory. A wonderful, glorious vision of a human life lived well. But we fall short of that glory. We fail to love the way we should. And we fail to hate the way we should. We love the wrong things in the wrong way, in the wrong proportion at the wrong time. And we hate the wrong things the wrong way, in the wrong proportion at the wrong time. We get our loves and our hates, that is our base level desires, our epithumia, all modelled up and horribly distorted and out of proportion. And it makes a mess of everything. Notice that this is a very different way to approach things than is often done. Uh, Lots of times we tend to think in terms of rules. And, and it's, it's both Christians who, who think the rules matter and non-believers who think the rules are rubbish. Both of them are thinking in terms of rules, the same thing. And then the question becomes, am I keeping the rules? Which normally stops at a fairly superficial level of behaviour. Here's a rule, don't murder. Hands up all the people who have not murdered. You don't have to be tentative about that. You just be proud. Congratulations, well done. I mean, whoopee-doo. I mean, I'm glad it's not me, that's good, but come on, there's more to life than rules, don't you think? There's got to be. That's so superficial. We need something deeper, more insightful than that. And and the truth is, you see, that we're more than the sum of our decisions and behaviours. When I get angry at my kids again, or I whinge about my colleague again, or I'm paralysed by fear when someone confronts me again, or I get defensive when someone criticises me again, the issue is not just that particular little thing. We recognise that individual decisions and responses weave themselves together to make a pattern. And behavioural patterns like that we call habits. After a while, responding defensively and morosely to criticism is not just an isolated incident that happens to be a bit similar to the other one two hours ago. It's a habit. It's a bad habit, or what we call a vice. And when a habit becomes ingrained like that, it goes from being, I responded in a defensive way, to, I am a defensive person. I'm a person who can't handle criticism. Now, our task next week is going to see how those habits, those good and bad virtues and vices are linked to our loves and our hates. But for the moment, notice how when you put together your habits, your good and bad character traits, what you have is a whole person. Uh, A lovely phrase that has emerged over the last few years, I think really um, neatly reflects this way of thinking, You might be talking with someone, uh, they're in a reflective mode, they recognise that they did or said something that jars with them, and so the way they put it is to say, you you ever said this or heard this? I'm not that person. Or you might say to someone, don't be that person. I think it's a powerful way to put it because it captures the sense 
we have of being a kind of person in a total sort of way. The kind of person for whom uh, this, it does or doesn't make sense that they behave in a particular way. And the point is this, the reason for the gap is that we know intuitively that we're created for glory. The glory of the living and true God who is love. That that ought to be something we reflect with beautiful crystal clarity in our lives. And at the same time that the kind of person we've become and are in the process of continuing to become more or less drifts from that glory. That's the gap. In other words, I am that person. I don't want to be that person, but I am. There's a powerful moment in the Old Testament in the life of the prophet Isaiah. He writes about it in chapter 6 of the book of Isaiah when he is unavoidably confronted by the gap. He goes to church, or in his context, the temple in Jerusalem, and the strangest thing happens. I mean, who'd have thought it in church? God shows up. Directly and immediately and personally. And this encounter with God, this confrontation with the one whose image he's supposed to bear is utterly overwhelming to Isaiah. He's shoved brutally into the gap and he knows it and he says, woe is me, I'm lost. Uh, Literally, it's I'm undone. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Notice, it's not just that he's broken a few rules. It's not just that he's performed some naughty actions. The problem is him. He is that person. And in particular, the language he uses is that very powerful, very personal, very deep language of uncleanness, both individually and collectively. Because we know intuitively that the impure, what is unclean, polluted and polluting, cannot stand in the presence of the King, the Lord of hosts, the Holy One. He compares himself not sideways to other people, not, not to other human beings that are more or less like him. No, he compares himself against the living and the true God and the gap is utterly apparent to him. The fisherman Peter has an almost identical experience the first time he meets Jesus. He supernaturally guides Peter to a catch of fish and Peter has enough insight to recognise who Jesus is. He's not just a prophet, he's not just a guru, he's not just a religious teacher, there were plenty of them around and then some. No, this was the immediate presence of the living and true God and so Peter says what just makes perfect sense to say. He says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And Jesus is incredibly sensitive and tender and he calls Peter not to be afraid but to join him as a fisher of people. And Peter, the account records, leaves everything to follow Jesus. And the whole encounter is as beautiful a depiction of repentance as you can find. So let's start to work this into our souls, this beginnings of repentance. Um, I want to ask you, what is your experience of the gap? 
Uh, the gap, which I've said, is a product of seeing two things with clarity. Your purpose and destiny, what God made you for, and your current state. How are you going at holding onto the gap? How are you going at living in the gap? Because there are alternatives, you see. There are alternatives. The first option is to look for a strategy to artificially close the gap. There are two versions of this. They correspond to the two poles. On the one hand, you can lower the bar of glory so that it's not nearly so difficult. You whisper to yourself, mostly in a way that you barely even register, that, you know what? Good enough is good enough. If I'm not hurting most people most of the time, then that's sufficient. I don't actually have to love my neighbour. I've just got to not kill them. If, if I'm not taking active vengeance, then that's good enough. I don't actually have to forgive people and seek reconciliation. If I'm a little bit of a selfish jerk, then that's okay because guess what? Everyone's a little bit of a selfish jerk at times and there are lots of people who are more selfish than I am. And so you lower the bar. You just bring it down and you close the gap. On the other hand, you can close the gap by talking yourself up. Now, one good way to do this is to be selective in your viewing. You take great notice of the fact that you're a very generous person with your time and energy and even your money, but you don't really concern yourself with the fact that you're deeply self-righteous and extremely cutting with your words because, after all, you're an extremely generous person. By being very one-eyed about things. And so you close the gap one way or the other. There's a second option, which is to acknowledge the gap but just accept it. That's the way things are. That's the way things always have been. That's the way things are always going to be. A leopard can't change its spots. Haters going to hate. Life goes on. There is the sad, resigned version of this when from time to time you wonder whether things might be different, whether it might just be possible that you could live a greater life and be a bigger, truer version of yourself. Or there is the cynical, disengaged version of this when you completely give up and you simply set about to extract the most juice from life that you can, regardless of what it costs you or anyone else. How are you going in the gap? Because you see, there's a third option. And the third option begins with a conviction of hope. Because God comes to you in grace. It's what we see in Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, as recorded to us in Luke chapter 19, is a genuinely bad person. Uh, there's no one has any doubts about that. He's a tax collector, he's actually a chief tax collector. Um, that's what we would call in our context a standover man. Uh, he is brutal and violent, hated and despised. The gap for him 
is absolutely gargantuan. And then he hears that Jesus is passing through Jericho. The crowd surrounding Jesus are big and Zacchaeus is small. He can't see over the top of them, but he's desperate and resourceful at the same time, and so he climbs a tree. Which would have been pretty embarrassing. Middle-aged men aren't very good at climbing trees. That's not how things are supposed to go, especially when you're rich and powerful like Zacchaeus. But something about Jesus seems to have worked its way into his heart, and so he figures it's worth the risk. And so there's Zacchaeus hiding up a tree, waiting for Jesus to pass by. Except Jesus doesn't pass by. Instead, he comes right up to the tree, right to where Zacchaeus is, and he sees Zacchaeus, and he knows Zacchaeus, and he knows how corrupt Zacchaeus is and how much people hate him, and yet instead of treating Zacchaeus like the grub that he is, Jesus says, Zacchaeus, hurry down. I'm coming to your place today. And everyone is shocked. And no one is more shocked than Zacchaeus. Because in front of Zacchaeus is a man who truly does bear the likeness of God. In front of Zacchaeus is a man who's always honest, who handles anger well, who's totally trustworthy, who's generous, who speaks to others to build them up, not to tear them down, who lets no evil talk come out of his mouth. In front of Zacchaeus is God's beloved son who truly does live in love. A man who's fully devoted to God, who doesn't treat Zacchaeus with bitterness or wrath or anger or wrangling or slander, but is kind and tender-hearted and forgiving. In front of him is a mirror of God's glory. And when Zacchaeus sees Jesus, he sees the person that he is meant to be. And instead of that crushing him, Zacchaeus finds in the graciousness of Jesus Christ something else. He doesn't try to pretend about the gap. He doesn't just resign himself to it. Because of the grace of Jesus Christ, He knows the power to repent. We know why Jesus was walking through Jericho that day. It's written for us. He came to seek out and to save the lost. Zacchaeus doesn't have to go seeking grace because grace came seeking him. And so in that terrible moment when he finally saw just how far short he'd fallen of the glory of God, he wasn't paralysed by despair. Because before he even knew that he needed to repent, grace was there to welcome him. Paul puts it like this in his letter to the Romans in chapter 2. He writes, Do not realise that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Do not realise that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So often we think that it's the other way around. That our repentance leads to God's kindness. That is that when we repent, God stops being angry at us and starts being positive towards us. But that's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. If you you thought that's what Christianity was, you've been under a terrible, terrible misapprehension. 
No, it's the other way around. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. We'll never repent otherwise. Not the first time, not any time. The way the Christian life starts, the way the Christian life continues, the way the Christian life grows is that what comes first, what always comes first, the only thing that will sustain you in the gap and give you hope is God's kindness. As Jesus comes to each one of us stuck up there in our own foolish, wicked trees, broken people, sinful people, hopeful and terrified at the same time. And he stops and he looks at us and he says, I'm coming to your place today. Henry Nouwen is an author who's written a, a book called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And in it, he focuses on the father's love for his otherwise estranged child. And he writes these words. Here lies the core of my spiritual struggle, the struggle against self-rejection, self-contempt and self-loathing. It is a very fierce battle because the world and its demons conspire to make me think about myself as worthless and useless and negligible. And every time I allow myself to be thus manipulated or seduced, I still have more reasons for putting myself down and seeing myself as an unwanted child. But now it goes on. I'm beginning now to see how radically the character of my spiritual journey will change. When I no longer think of God as hiding and making it as difficult as possible for me to find him, but instead as God is the one who is looking for me while I'm doing the hiding. When I look through God's eyes at my lost self and discover God's joy at my coming home, then my life may become less anguished and more trusting. Do you see what now I'm saying? When, when you look through God's eyes at your lost self and discover God's joy at your coming home, then you have the daring to grasp your destiny, what you're for. And you can do it without being crushed in the gap by your sin. You can rejoin the battle to put off the old self with its desires and embrace the desires God has for you. You're at the beginning of repentance becoming more and more the person God made you to be in the life-giving dynamic of grace. Amen.